You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. No special characters or spaces. Okay, let's hop to it. We are back, and I'm so excited because we have some new microphones. Yeah? Yay! Can you guys tell a difference? (laughs) I hope they can. Hope it'll be easier for editing, too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's about all that's new here. So, do you just (laughs) want to get right into it? Well, see, you know, when we only go a week at a time now, you know, there aren't as many, like, adventures in between. Mm -hmm, That's true. All right. So, uh, this week we have two episodes, or no. Two stories, two holidays. (laughs) Yes, we have two holidays coming at you this week. I have Pottery's Bottle Oven Day. Can you say that again? (laughs) Why do you always have me repeat these long ones? Because you choose the really long ones. Well, fine, be that way. It has a lot of syllables. I'm interested. (laughs) Okay, well then, after I say it again, you have to translate it in French, okay? Oh, no. (laughs) So, Pottery's Bottle Oven Day. On August 29th. I don't even know how to, like, do that in English. <laughs> what is the possessive? What is the noun? I'm not even going to try, except for Boutet's bottle. Okay. And Jules' day, so. Okay. All right. But anyway, so that's my day. And what's yours? And my day is National Power Rangers Day. Oh. Which is... <laughs> oh, flashback. I know, that also has quite a few syllables, but at least it all makes sense. <laughs> what? You're saying mine doesn't work? It doesn't make sense? Maybe it will once you explain it more. Someone created it, okay. Was it Potter's? Well, yeah. Potter? Yes, it's Potter's okay. that created it. Okay, okay. Pottery, yes. Sure. <laughs> so, National Power Rangers Day is on August 28th. So you get to go first, since mine's the 29th. Okay. Well, then let me go tell you about all those superheroes with spandex suits. How about that? (laughs) So, National Power Rangers Day, which again is August 28th, it was requested by by Hasbro and original producer and showrunner Chaim Saban, and it was announced by the website National Day Calendar back in 2017. It celebrates everything Power Ranger, and the promoters explain it doesn't matter where you where you live or who you are. With discipline, mindfulness, and heart, anyone can become a Power Ranger. So the date was chosen to represent the entire Power Ranger franchise and fandom because the original series, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, was aired August 28, 1993. Makes sense, right? So the first three seasons of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers all are built on a narrative of teenagers with attitude. This is... From the National Power Rangers Day, <laughs> it's all in quotes. Um, but they defend the Earth from the forces of evil thanks to advanced technologies given to them by their patron, Zordon. And so Zordon is kind of like this guy who is inspired from Wizard of Oz. So, like, the wizard himself 
it's just a face behind like a veil essentially and the actual actor only ever came in to you know go through makeup and everything for maybe a couple of hours the first day he was hired and they filmed him had a green screen in the back did a few quotes or a few uh, lines and then he he never performed again except for to do some new lines when it came to the next episode otherwise they would always use the same face so his lips almost never synced up actually with what was being said and that's because the mighty Morphin power rangers really did not have a budget even though later on or even actually early on they were earning a lot of money like this was a big franchise when it first came out and we'll get a little bit more into that but and you said it was 1993 yeah 1993 Gosh, I, thought, I guess i thought it was earlier than that like late 80s it seems kind of like a late 80s show right like just the crazy outfits and all that yeah it's i'm colorful. just trying to you know go back and think about like age and what age i was and it just seemed like I knew them when I was a little bit younger, but early 90s. Yeah. That was only three years before you. I know this, sh- <laughs> this series is older than me. <laughs> um, and so for those who don't know, to kind of describe more of what Power Rangers is, I know it's a really big franchise, even up until this day, they're still producing the series, but um, it was a type of like, monster of the week kind of program where the power rangers team would go ahead ahead with the villainous henchmen of the main big baddie rita repulsa there'd be three different fight scenes that typically filled out the episode team is ambushed by the henchmen and they're pretty helpless because they don't have their morphing technology in the first battle scene second skirmish would see the heroes defeat the antagonists thanks to their morphing abilities and then the third act is where Rita Repulsa uses her own powers to refortify her lackey, who, you know, was already defeated, <laughs> and making them bigger and meaner than before. And the Power Rangers must climb into the robotic suits known as Zords or Megazords, kind of depending on, you know, how they're combined. So the Zords are the individual robotic suit. They're really big. And so, like, basically when it comes to these typical or these types of scenes they are supposed to be representative of kind of like godzilla type scenes and that's because of the heritage and where everything power rangers comes from it's japanese originally but i know it always had such cheesy effects oh yeah and the dialogue everything about it was cheese and the fights (laughs) (laughs) but you know Everyone wanted to be a certain color Power Ranger. And that's true. Yeah. I don't remember which one I wanted to be. Uh, Of course, I wanted to be pink. Yeah. Why not yellow? (laughs) No, pink. Oh, well. I feel like I would have wanted to be probably the blue one. Because I kind of, (laughs) going through this research, I kind of meld with the demeanor of the original blue ranger because he was actually going to be the red ranger first the actor went over the script though and was like oh this team seems like too much pressure i would never (laughs) be the leader (laughs) and so he actually asked for them to give him 
the blue position because he did not want to lead the team. So going back to pink, uh, definitely a side side tangent here, but uh, when I was doing acting and this would have been about the same time because it was uh, right before you were born and I was in Steel Magnolias playing Shelby and she, her favorite color was pink. So everything was pink. And in this particular production, it was, of course, community theater. So whatever you can bring in to help out, you know, with costumes and the fact that that's more modern day. So it's not like, you know, period pieces and stuff. Uh, they needed me to basically wear jeans most of the time with pink shirts. And I was able to bring in my whole wardrobe because my entire wardrobe was pink. Really? Yeah, I was. Like you have pink items now, but... I don't feel like you wear it that often. <laughs> well, it's not, not your full wardrobe. You yeah, know? not not nowadays, but back then, yeah, I had tons and tons and tons of pink. Back when you were a Barbie girl and you actually had, like, <laughs> blonde hair yeah. and all that. Um, well, going back to the Zords, too, you know, they were all dinosaur-themed, and that's because, well, I'll get to that in a second, actually, but so each of the, you know, Zords were, like, pterodactyl or t-rex or stegosaurus something that's kind of like paleological in a sense and then that if they had to beat like a really really big foe i think this was almost every episode <laughs> but they would actually combine their dinosaur mecha robot technologies together to form the really big guy right and they would go ahead do some big blasts a lot of explosions um, and take out the foe for that week. And what's interesting now, I think, is that, again, the first three seasons were kind of, like, built on a narrative. So you kept with the same Power Ranger team. The Power Rangers actually did change up because there was a lot of issues with payments. It was not a union show, so a lot of the actors did not get paid very well. <laughs> so, uh... I think that's actually what ultimately kind of led to the closure of the entire series in the first three seasons. But either way, it didn't die, and it's still continuing. Um, and you kind of have, like, these different eras that are set per, I don't know, a certain number of seasons where they're kind of related but kind of not. And I guess every... Power Ranger team that comes after the original always knows about the previous one that just came before them, but other than that, they kind of don't really meet up as much, and so it's very much like a contained story, right? I and... just remember it basically being fighting, fighting the bad guy, and all that, and just once again, lots of cheesy effects, and especially the fire. That's all you needed, really. <laughs> Yeah. Apparently, I don't really remember the storylines much. That's sad. <laughs> Apparently, also when the new film came out, which kind of got like a resurgence just with this whole nostalgia coming back of the '90s uh, properties and all that. Um, back in 2017, they rebooted the series with a new film of the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But it kind of received mild success because they took it too seriously. And everybody just wanted the cheese factor to it. <laughs> They're like, where is our cheesy dialogue? 
Come on now. We want so many explosions that make no sense. There's also one series. So each uh, Power Rangers season, series, story arc, I guess is the best way to describe it, uh, you know, will have a certain theme to it and a certain... Eh, that's a theme. It might be about, like, really fast muscle cars. It might be about pirates. It might be about ninjas and shoguns. Something to that effect. Space navigators and astronauts. But um, one of them was called RPM. And I don't really know much about it. I just watched this clip. They all had Australian accents. <laughs> Which I think is interesting because I'm not 100% sure if it was Australia, but... There are at least, like, 13 countries that banned Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But I thought it was filmed mostly there. I don't think it was filmed mostly there. I think it was filmed mostly in Hollywood, but I'm not sure about that. Um, what I do know is the first Mighty Morphin Power Rangers film came, or was produced in Australia. So you have, like, all these jungle scenes, and that's because that's just the outback there. But... Anyway, this one series, the RPM one, they actually had a lot of fun kind of poking at like the history and the reasons why certain special effects occurred during the show. And that's because, I don't know, take for example, when they are... So if you're looking at a Power Ranger, they're just normal people, right? And then they have their transforming technology. And they said... It's Morphin Time, or Go Go Power Rangers, I don't remember. Um, And they would go into kind of like this liminal space area, and they're suited up with their spandex suits. And in the back, once everything is complete, it just has explosions going on in the back. And one of them asks, like, what is that all about? (laughs) And... Uh, to this researcher who had designed the morphing technology or whatever it is. And she's like, oh, it's just a release of extra energy because uh, yada, 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 science. (laughs) Then throughout the entire episode, they actually utilized the explosions in the back of their morphing changing scene to actually be used in the reality. (laughs) So... You know, there's, like, some big fight scene that's about to occur. The Power Rangers, there's, like, two of them. They're trying to fight them off. They're being defeated. One comes in. He turns into his form. And <laughs> and then the entire battle finishes because it, he actually had the people, the monsters behind him, and they just go, <laughs> And that was it. <laughs> so, um... But anyway, back to kind of like I was saying earlier, this was a massive hit when it came out. The first season raked in 57% of the targeted demographic, which was children 6 to 11 during weekdays and something like 7 to 15 during Saturday mornings. I don't know. And it was an estimated 4.8 million viewers daily, inflating to 6.9 million for its second season. Wow. And, you know, they have all these uh, uh, ratings and surveys because of the Nielsen (laughs) uh, boxes, uh, those old just ways to record who is viewing what. And uh, Nielsen ratings were like, wow, this is amazing. 
So two years after the pilot was released, in 1995, Power Rangers merchandising had risen to $1 billion. Starting off with four factories to produce toys and paraphernalia, Hasbro ramped that up to 16 to keep up with demand. Reportedly, stores such as Toys R Us had to limit the number of figurines that could be sold to a family. <laughs> and it was limited to just one figurine per family yeah. that came in. I don't really remember that much, but I guess by the time that you were old enough to get the figurines, then, you know, it wasn't, like, it wasn't the very beginning. Yeah, I think it kind of, the fad had at least reduced a little bit. Um, you weren't experiencing it the live appearances of the actors appearing in like Floridian malls or Universal Studios that actually led to huge traffic jams. Um, one time when they were actually at the Universal Studios in Hollywood, it, it attracted 35,000 people. And it, it basically incurred an eight mile long traffic jam <laughs> in the middle of Holly or LA. <laughs> We actually did, I can't remember if you did it with me, but we did one of the promos for them. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. I got it through an agent, but yeah, I remember doing one of the promos for what them. What was it? Exactly. What did you do? What did you do? I think that we just um, were like on the the street, you know, all excited about them type thing or something like that. But I vaguely remember doing the promo and meeting them in person. So maybe we I did cause pictures somewhere. <laughs> some of the traffic <laughs> Well, that was in L.A. though. Well, no, but like I said, there was actually a report from Newsweek article, just Newsweek, um, where a father was basically recounting the fact that he took his like five-year-old son, something like that, to this mall and it was so jammed packed that he had to park about a mile away and then had to just walk over there while carrying his son <laughs> to show them. And he came back home uh, and his wife's like, where were you guys? Why are you like so defeated? Like you have scars or whatever. And uh, he's like, we've been to war. <laughs> <laughs> so the show was directly inspired by the equally popular Japanese TV series Super Sentai. Super Sentai. While on the trip to Japan, Saban, again the original showrunner, recognized the hype for the show and made the important decision to try selling it to an American studio. He championed the series for seven years before it was actually picked up by Fox Studios. Which it's amazing is... how many like come from the Asian region mm -hmm. over here, and I think uh, the Masked Singer, you know, that I absolutely love. Um, but I think that was Korean. I think it was, was a Korean yeah, it series. It wasn't Japanese, yeah. but still um, over in that area. It's interesting what comes out there. Yeah. I, I don't know. The cheese factor, I guess, is kind of fun in a way. <laughs> <laughs> you can definitely have fun with it. That's yeah. for sure. But basically, he just saw like so many people were into it over there. So many kids. He was like, okay, this needs to be a thing here, too. So Super Sentai and its American counterpart were practically copies, and that's not hyperbole. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers production was limited in budget again, so the large Zord fights that the show was known for were directly lifted from Super Sentai, with permission by the original studio production. So <laughs> they actually just took the specific fights that were the Godzilla-type ones, and would place them into the American version 
and where the American diff American one differed was only creating a storyline that was kind of based around those scenes and having English actors work with that. But it kind of made it difficult for the story writers because they didn't really have much communication going on with the original Japanese team. So they would just receive these fight scenes and uh, as like, for example, flying rubber pig monster. And all they saw was that was the fight and all the other scenes were based around that. So what do you do with that? <laughs> and um, one of the actors said they were kind of like obligated to follow whatever was being done in the original series, in the Japanese version, I mean, to then go ahead and do whatever they could in the American version, which it seems very, you know, closed off in the way of your creativity, but at the same time, maybe in another way, it gives you a lot of liberty to do what you want with it. I don't know. They said that was the hardest part. That was the biggest challenge. And eventually, after like one, two seasons, whatever, the Japanese uh, toy company, Toy, and, oh, I don't remember what the other company is right now, Bandai. They're either one and the same or two different companies. I can't remember right now. But they're the ones who originally produced um, the series in Japan. Well, then when they're working with the American group, they noticed how much what, how much the popularity had risen in America for it. That's when they kind of were like, oh, actually, let's get the Japanese studio to communicate better and actually fit the American version in. So they were able to adapt more as it went on later years. But really, it was just like a big mess <laughs> in the first season. Um, Saban... He hired actors. It was apparently like an open casting call. They were seeing thousands of people who were wanting to do this. And it might be like one day they see somebody and they're like, okay, we want you to come in. We want you to actually be a part of this. Um, the original Rita Repulsa, the big mean villain of the series, she was there for the pilot and they um, fired her after the pilot. And she's like, well, why is that? Well, we wanted more of like a scary Wicked the Witch type voice, <laughs> but yours just didn't really get that gravitas to it. So she's like, no, 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 let me come in. I got something for you. And so she did, and she convinced them, and she actually kept, you know, she got the job back, and she <laughs> kept through the first three seasons. I think really the first like six seasons, she was kind of somehow related to it. In later years, that she would appear as a cameo in some way. Um, so she had a lot of fun with it, I think. In your research, did you um, find anything like the monsters that they fought? Were they mechanical? Were they people in costumes? Were they miniatures? So what's interesting about the way the Japanese series was filmed it was a part of a larger genre that still again goes on to say as well called um tokusan i think it is i don't have it in my notes here but it is basically saying we are going to put people into suits and costumes and have them fight but we will make them look mechanical we will make them look uh 
you know, like the whole kind of uniform look that's just we lose your individuality in a way and just have you guys fight. So I don't think they really use much puppetry. I think for the most part, they actually got people to act in bodysuits. So Super Sentai was actually produced in 1975 as well. And then the chorus Power Rangers, it was picked up in the 90s. And the first season, the Power Rangers was based on the 16th version of Super Sentai. And that, that theme was dinosaurs. So that's why they kind of chose uh, the first season to, you know, represent this. And they said it was something to do with riding off the hype of Jurassic Park. <laughs> I don't know if that was actually the Power Rangers choice or if that was the Super Sentai choice. But either way, I thought that was kind of a fun story. So I don't think I could think of it as anything but dinosaurs just because like you were saying the Godzilla and the... You know, with that mindset. Yeah. Well, and so Godzilla is also a tokusan uh, type of film. And really the reason why tokusan came about was uh, something I'm going to go into here is that it is a post-World War II genre in uh, Japan. So when I found in my research this academic paper that talked about Super Sentai... Um, by Seyong Kim from the Department of Cinematic Arts in the University of Iowa. I really was just so interested in this particular paper. The conclusion is kind of Super Sentai functions as a sort of education or a form of ideological training where children acquire a historical sense, Japanese children, acquire a historical sense of national trauma in two parts. The anxiety of defeat is learned through narrative of the television series and the revolution to or, sorry and the resolution to prevent such ca catastrophe is realized through play. That's a lot. <laughs> um, the actual paper is called "Children of the Atom: Post-War Anxiety and Children Play in Super Children's Play in Super Sentai," and so he goes into describing how. Uh, this genre of tokusan really was to kind of inform the children of where they came from and maybe how they can, what they can do to change and defend Japanese culture. So many of the really well-known Japanese TV series or films that come from the expression and processing of a nation that went through severe trauma in the 1940s and the subsequent occupation of foreign entities on their own land. A genre that let them express anxieties of the time the most was sci-fi. So science fiction lets the viewer interact with a future world built on technologies that surpass contemporaneous doubts. And looking towards the positive side of things because there are a lot of Japanese properties that also kind of sink the viewer into worse fears. So either way, you're surpassing what the current doubts are. <laughs> but um, Astro Boy, do you know that yeah, series? Yeah, Astro Boy. So Astro Boy was one of the first series to explore this optimistic future for Japan because it resonated with the idea of building a hero, building a new citizen. It also looked towards children as being the solution to their economic and cultural strife. Incidentally, this became the trend in much of the post-war pop culture, and Super Sentai was no different. Although there is one catch with Astro Boy, 
as he is completely robotic, which meant you, the human child, could only emulate him because you are not a robot, right? However, Super Sentai gave the child a way to become one with technology, despite their human biology. Any kid, purportedly, could go through what's known as henshin. So henshin is the original Japanese word for, if you're looking in the, you know, mythology of uh, Power Rangers, morphin time. It is to literally translate as transformation. And Seiyoung Kim acknowledges henshin is not a technological matter in the sense that it entails some sort of equipment that can be worn. Instead, henshin is a process that requires an actual transformation of the heroes on the bodily level. So he continues that any child watching the show and later reenacting scenes from the program with its related merchandise could come to understand the melding of technology with a tenacious spirit leads to the survival of this nouveau Japanese culture. It was kind of like, it's interesting, he talks a little bit about how when you talk about sentai, the word sentai or ranger, they are militaristic terms, but it's heavily, the show is heavily disassociated with the military, and that might be due in part to the fact that Japan, you know, they got into their whole economic and cultural strife due to the fact that they were trying to support such a large imperialistic military. Of course, that led to the issues of post-World War years. So Se-young Kim kind of looked at it as being a way to do an alternative way of defending Japan by saying, like, okay, if you learn how to be courageous and basically everything I had like said in the early part of this episode where if you are disciplined and you have heart and you're kind these are the way to work with technology and this will actually protect our society and what's kind of ironic in a way is that when the first when the series first arrived in the USA in the USA in USA <laughs> um Many parents condemned the show for its gratuitous battle scenes and how that changed the behavior of their kids. <laughs> I know, it's still a debate going on today. It's a uh, stupid debate. Oh, well, yeah, because I actually <laughs> think it was, um, once again, it goes to nowadays where the kids growing up aren't getting that creativity and that outlet to play. And, you know, pretending you were kind of ninja and that kind of fighting was... Actually, I think a creative out, outlet and a good way, you know, to use your time. It kind of goes back to using, now, you know, it's getting really hard to use even play pistols and stuff, but cowboys and Indians and something like that, um, you know, it just, it allowed for more creativity and got the kids outside and playing with each other instead of on video games. I think your thoughts on, you know, the way children would reenact different scenes or different ways of thinking when it came to you know going outside doing this and that resonates pretty well with what Seung Kim goes into this is kind of like he has to describe a lot about Power Rangers until towards the end when he talks about how children are impacted that's not grammatically correct I'm sorry but that's what I'm saying 
how they're influenced by this kind of like educational system set up in Super Sentai. Um, but, but going back into the U.S., just to explain a little bit more of how the U.S. thought about it and seeing it get um, explained away in a bit in the paper. So teachers and child behavior undergraduates and parents, parents all proclaimed that the show created aggressive and violent behavior in kids, pitting one against the other, which is interesting because if you looked at the articles. I couldn't find actual research papers done on this, but if you looked at articles, they were kind of vague on what the violent actions were and the aggressive actions were, other than they were kicking and trying to pretend to be ninjas, you know. But they never said that a child would go up to another child and actually just, like, be mean to them. They never became more mean. They were more physically active, but they were not necessarily violent. I don't know. I feel like there's a difference between aggression with violence and just being, you know, actively <laughs> participating in something. So was I a bad mom since I let you watch Power Rangers? I, I mean, think so. I don't think I ever saw you go up and ninja attack someone. I think it, you are a mom who definitely should have been reprimanded for everything. Although, you did teach me to defend myself. And when I used Wilbur, my <laughs> stuffed animal dog, to keep away a bully who kept harassing me. <laughs> and I, you know, politely, from what you've said... About like one to two times before he came up would bug me and I said, please leave me alone. And then he would keep going and going. So I eventually hit him <laughs> with my soft animal. You used your words like we taught you. I and then words. if they don't work, you can do whatever you need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I got called into the office and uh, they didn't want to expel you or suspend you. But they like had a long chat with me about how you um, handled the situation. And when they told me, I couldn't believe that they actually told me, yeah, you you said, don't do that. And he did it. And he said, don't do that. And he did it. And he said, don't do that again. And he did it. And the third time you hit him yeah. with, with your stuffed dog, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it did much damage. But I'm just like, I was sitting there in bewilderment, I guess, that I'm like, Okay, you're the principal of this school and you're telling me that my child did the appropriate thing three times, used his words, and no teacher or anyone intervened. And so he had to take, you know, count into his own hand. And that's when, yeah, they said that I needed to talk to you about it and this and that. And I told him I wouldn't. I said that you did the appropriate thing and that's what I've taught you. And I said that you were not going to be in any trouble at home. There we go. And I think that was kind of the downfall of the school. <laughs> Why we sort of left. But anyway, yeah. So yes, yeah. apparently with all these, there are a lot of articles that I could find that were archived. Um, there were some from like LA Times. There were some from the Newsweek. And even just like websites are dedicated to protecting children and all that. They, even like education-related uh, websites, they were all saying that Power Rangers was a really bad influence on kids. But 
if this is a little bit um a hard to discern because so ultimately i don't think power rangers did anything bad they're literally talking about if you're a kind person you can you know save the world or whatever but more specifically with the paper and how it looks at its own um cultural sphere it doesn't necessarily mention american children and how their behavior was affected but it does show a difference in how american children received the merchandise versus the japanese um children so typically children are this is a very long quote that i'm gonna say because i took a lot of different parts from the paper that kind of fleshed out what i thought was really interesting when it came to this comparison of the two cultural groups so children are encouraged by figures to act out what they have viewed in that sense, boys' play is situated around the morality play of good versus evil. This is not entirely the case with Super Sentai. While figurines are a major category of Super Sentai toys, types of figures that are produced unevenly represent the heroes. But more importantly, when considering the entirety of available Super Sentai merchandise, we find that even the heroes themselves are not the focal point of Bandai's products. Instead, it is the mecha and roleplay toys that dominate the market. As with their Japanese counterpart, Bandai of America also produces robots and roleplay toys. However, the focus is far more on action, fixture, action figures, which includes the villains. What we can see in the emphasis on robots and roleplay toys is a particular way in which Super Sentai structures children's play. If the war play in US toys requires a protagonist and an antagonist, then the play in Super Sentai does not require a target. More importantly, what becomes evident is how Super Sentai does not animate the child to mimic the hero's violence through toy figurines. Instead, it encourages the children to use their own bodies. In contrast to the U.S. context where the pro proliferation of clearly demarcated good and evil action figurines indicates the value of indiv individualistic heroism, priority is not given to any individual with the Japanese toys. So, kind of, again, going back to the what is Super Sentai teaching to Japanese children is that all children can become a Power Ranger because it's kind of more of a collective force. And just being a part of that collective really is going to let you kind of be the best citizen that you can be. And... When he's comparing it with the U.S. merchandise, there's more focus on the actual figurines and, um, you know, all this and that. It goes with, you know, I was watching The Farewell recently and then even the idea of the collective over there definitely trumps anything that's individualistic. It's West versus East. And I don't know, I just thought that was super interesting that it would show up even in the way of how children would play with toys, but how the country, the home country, would produce the toys for that kind of like prescriptive or, sorry, not prescriptive, but descriptive um, teaching to children. Well, it's interesting because the 
you know, what you're saying if they embody it, at least they're embodying, you know, the good part and thinking of that and the collective and all that. But it almost seems like if you're giving a child figures to play with and they're acting out the scenes of those figures, then they know that it's not reality. You know, it's almost like, okay, I'm playing these parts and I'm doing it in a way that's safe. You know, they're fighting each other instead of taking on, if I'm that person, then I could see where, you know, those, uh, those not specialists, uh, but professionals would say, okay, yeah, now it could lead to violence because you're kind of embodying it and thinking you're that person. So it's kind of weird that, you know, you've got that dynamic if they're saying that that is the way that Sentai, is that what you said? Super Sentai. Super Sentai was in that thinking and, you know, the marketing of the objects, that they didn't have the objects and they became it. But to me, that seems like that could lead more to violence rather than the figures themselves. Well, and it's, I just think it's so interesting because as being Americans, you know, we have our own way of thinking versus how Japanese uh, general consciousness is but even so going back to the original showrunner for mighty Morphin power rangers the american version uh saban he had that exact sorry <laughs> he had that exact same um logic that you have when he was uh, combating against all this you know negative uh, thought about uh, mighty Morphin power rangers he said himself, like, obviously kids can, like, understand what is reality and what is fantasy. And uh, what they see on TV is obviously fantastic. So they are not going to, or what they play with, it's not going to actually be affecting how they behave in real life. So I don't know. I don't know if it's, like, different ways of how maybe American children handle something versus how... Japanese children, I don't know, it's... Flash forward 20 years, you know, would would they have ever written that or said that about Power Rangers knowing what kind of games are out there now that influence oh, yeah. violence? Like, no, ultimately, Power Rangers led to all these very violent video games, <laughs> obviously. So, to kind of wrap up this segment, I just wanted to talk about two times where... Uh, the TV show got interesting. <laughs> um, kind of like going off of talking about RPM, where they got meta with everything and actually explained why certain things happened in the show that were just cheese and all that. So did you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles exist in the same universe as Power Rangers? <laughs> in an episode of Power Rangers in Space, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles team are summoned by the antagonists to battle against the Power Rangers. So the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are the bad guys in this episode. <laughs> Guess they forgot to order the uh, Power Rangers some pizza. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, they actually do make reference to pizza a lot in that episode. I found clips of both of these episodes I'm talking about, but this one, they had it down to just kind of like the main points. And they even go a little bit meta into this. So the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are 
comics in the Power Rangers series, but the Power Rangers are a comic book series in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it's like a whole multi-dimensional traversing kind of deal that lets the turtles come into this universe. But yeah, they like fight and whatever because the turtles are hypnotized and all that. Eventually they're released from that hypnotization. Hypnosis, there we go. From that hypnosis. And uh, they become good pals with the Power Rangers. <laughs> I think they asked to go get pizza or something. I don't know. In another episode, so this is the Dino Thunder iteration, which is another season outside of the first three. Um, there was an episode called Lost and Found in Translation. And it has three of the American Power Rangers watching a dubbed version of an actual Super Sentai episode that inspired this episode. <laughs> and they really get into it. Like, um, two of them are kind of like, wow, this is weird, but cool. And I just want to see how, like, the Japanese would look at how Power Rangers are. And then, like, one of them's like, oh, everything's wrong. They're doing this wrong incorrectly. Um, then he eventually gets really into it. But it was like a nice little cultural exchange of being like, I think the final kind of like comments on the episode were, you know what? It's a different interpretation, but that doesn't make it bad. So we can appreciate it for what it is. <laughs> Which I thought was like a very big thing for a show like this to say. <laughs> That is basically all I have for National Power Rangers Day. Um, the actual website, or the website uh, promoter, says that you should wear your Power Rangers cosplay and post it on social media. And really it's just to show off your own uh, ability to be a Power Ranger. So yeah. So you're going to rush out and get a Power Ranger cosplay outfit. Uh, do we have anything left over from, like, when I was a kid? I, you never dressed as them. I thought I only got did. You, no, I, I don't think you did for any Halloween that I remember. I thought I did. Maybe not. Maybe it was one know. of my I'll friends. I have to go look it up, but I think you, maybe you were. I don't know. All I do remember is that there is, like, some kind of space police force version and they had a headquarters that was a dog and it could transform Aww. and i had a lot of fun with that one <laughs> that was my favorite one maybe you were i don't know i think gg would have made your outfit though maybe i don't know we'll have to go back and look at pictures I remember you making me a charmander or a charmeleon yes you were that yeah, that which was, is a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hard outfit to make. It was all felt. It was orange. Yeah, but the big fat tail that we had to stuff with batting and everything. I don't remember the tail as much. Yeah. I remember it being there, but I don't remember what it was like. So you were, okay, so the first Halloween you were a lion. Okay. Then, let's see, you were police officer that one time. We went out to... SeaWorld, and that was the very first time we did the Halloween at SeaWorld. Um, and you were pushing around the car. And your friend was a ladybug, so you took a picture with her as a ladybug. Yeah, you're a Char, Charmander, or Charmeleon. 
think it was Charmeleon, but I don't really know. <laughs> Maybe it was Charmander one year and then Charmeleon the next, so it would be an evolution. Oh, you actually know the very, very first time, I think you were Hershey Kiss. I think that was before the I think the I remember you telling me that because you and Dad wanted to like bring the little kiss around, right? <laughs> well, and you were entered into a show and you could just barely walk at that time so yes actually you were hershey kiss before you were a lion <laughs> there you go guys that's the way life works yeah but yeah there was something else in there so maybe you're power ranger i don't know well <laughs> any other comments for this holiday well i don't think you would fit in that so you probably better go look up some cosplay uh, outfits maybe, if you yeah. really really want to do it i wonder do you think that's where more suits eventually came from I don't think so. I don't think they're the same thing. <laughs> and I keep saying spandex suits because that's what literally every source will say. But actually in one episode, they point out it's not spandex. But I think that's more of like a defensive mechanism <laughs> from one of the characters more so than actually them trying to describe what their suits are. Very made tight of. leotards, okay? That's what they are. Yeah. <laughs> Full-length yeah. leotards. Exactly. All right, well... I think we can celebrate it by, so we have a coconut right now that we need to break open. We really don't know how to do it. However, when we've been overseas, they always use a machete. So I think we should go get a machete for uh, Power Ranger days. Huh? And Whoops. And then you can uh, whack the coconut, you know, to open it up for Power Ranger day. And how does this relate to Power Rangers? Well, let's see. You're taking out your aggression on the coconut. but It's the enemy. But don't ninjas have machetes? No! <laughs> they don't have machetes. They don't have machetes. They got katanas. If anything. Oh, okay. I think he just offended the entire, <laughs> like, anime fandom, entire <laughs> island oh, nation. Samurai sword, okay? Okay, so, I'm sorry, instead of machete, you can go get a samurai sword. Okay. Alright, is that better? Let's go get a very yeah. very sharp sh a sword that can cut through a coconut is all i mean all right i guess it's like you know brand names of kleenex and tissues <laughs> and coke and soda so anyway uh, all right moving on yeah right? moving right? on to your okay. holiday so here we go again pottery's bottle oven day so it a guy named pot I okay, you have to explain this. I'm, sur I'm surprised you didn't go to Harry Potter for that. No. Pottery's Bottle Oven Day on August 29th. And it was founded by Terry Williscroft, who actually recorded this um, event. So I'll talk a little bit more about him, but um, he is the founder of it. And the day was actually created to celebrate the last time a pottery bottle oven was kindled and fired. What is a pottery bottle oven? <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. But do you know, um, have any idea what date that would have been? Like what year? Uh, last time it was rekindled. Uh, re or it was kindled and fired. Oh, and I will say first time. No, last time. Okay. And I will say there was a gap, and we'll explain that. But the very last time that one has been used. Period. I would say maybe it has to be later. Like it has to be 20th century to make it special. <laughs> I'm going to actually say like 2003. 
Uh, not quite that late, but uh, 1978. Okay, I was thinking 70s. Yeah, so there you go. That's but also... you're right, you know, the, we're in the latest century anyway. I think 1977 is the last year the guillotine was used. Oh. In France. <laughs> to execute <laughs> a... Pottery oven guillotine. Don't find the connection, but okay. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> All right. So at one point in time before 1978, there were anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 of these bottle ovens around. And uh, right now there's only about 47 left. They are no longer working ovens. They are considered buildings and structures now, and most of them are museums. So it's much larger than just like a typical oven. The it, Yes, they are very, very big. I mean, they could be all different sizes, but yes, they were relatively big. Um, kind of get into into cycles on them and things because um, not only were they big, they took a long time to actually fully reach their cycle. And they were called, of course, a pottery or yeah, a pottery bottle oven because it baked. What, uh -huh. what do you think? A bottle. <laughs> Baked pottery. So, wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, a lot of times the ovens that they used were named based on kind of what they baked or cooked in them. So. so this oven was integral to pottery and showed up in a region in England, just north of London, uh, like as you're headed up to Manchester. And it's called uh, Stoke-on-Trent. When I was re uh, researching this and reading it, it made me think of when we were in uh, Myanmar and went to Bagan and all of the stupas were around and things like that. And I'm like going, this is what this kind of sounds like. Because once again, there were anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 um, of these ovens dotting the countryside oh, okay. just north of London. So be very cool to see um we have made several trips well i guess you have made several trips to london i have only been there once um we'll be there again in a in a couple months but uh something that we definitely need to seek out while we're there yeah because next time we won't be able to because we're going to south of london but uh i think it would be really cool to see them uh but the reason that they died off um was due to the clean air act in 1956. Uh, so before that time, these ovens were used extensively for the pottery and they created a thick smoke mm -hmm. uh, that basically blanketed the area whenever they used it. So you can imagine, you know, up to 4,000 ovens creating this um, black smoke and it could take um, anywhere up to 72 hours for some of the cycles to burn mm -hmm. their full pottery so that was just day after day after day of thick black smoke in this area and so this is london or just north of london yeah just north okay. of london and it um reminded me of uh Gigi was talking about when she lived in um i think it was outside of pittsburgh but the factories there um she would keep up in her windows and every day she would just have soot all over the house uh, from that that she'd have to clean up and she said she was always having to wash her curtains because they yeah. got dirty so so um definitely this uh government act really changed uh the face of this particular region and um it's kind of sad because you know it, 
there were a lot of people, of course, that many ovens around. A lot of people, of course, um, lost their jobs. And they, the art of using these ovens, there's a true art to it, actually um, kind of died off. You know, people uh, weren't enlisted and learned how to use them and things like that. And the, the head people that actually controlled them were called firemen. Because they actually had to control the fires in these um, ovens. And it was um, the it was such an important part of their culture that when it died off, but um, and they were told later that, you know, we want to fire up an oven again and just do this. It like brought such pride to the area that it was amazing how many people came out for this last oven burning, not just to um, to see it, but to help out, to be involved in it. Okay. And uh, because of that, and because it was such a unique thing that they were doing, and it took so much preparation, and then during the actual event, it took almost, it was 31 hours uh, to go through the cycle, it was documented, so it's such a well-documented thing. It was documented from the planning um, ahead of time. They actually have audio tapes of them talking about it and having a discussion of how it would go and, you know, what they want to do, things like that. Uh, they had video being taken um, before uh, on the lectures of it, as well as video during it, and... Um, Pretty much minute by minute, everything was documented, which is very fascinating. And it was recorded on audio tapes as well. And that is um, Terry Wolfscroft, who actually created the day, is the one that did all the recording ah. of the tapes. So um, I think it was neat because uh, a curator, uh, one of the original curators, uh, Pam Bott, and also this uh, Terry Wolfscroft, were there. You know, they got to witness everything going on. And if you uh, go to their website, which I will actually put it down, you know, in the comments, but it is, let me find it here. It's um, LB of 1978. Let's see. Okay. Okay. LB of 1978.blogspot.com. There's several articles written on there. And just once again, it talks about the research of the day and, is so cool how they write the articles because it makes you seem like you are there at the event yourself, how it's written. And even though pottery was made in these ovens, for the event, at one point, they actually cooked bacon on shovels mm. in the oven. And uh, this was uh, several days after, um, after they actually fired it up. And people were still there and they were wondering if it was because of the bacon or if they really truly, you know, wanted to be there because they love this event every day and just wanted to see how it was going on. And uh, the, the bacon apparently had such an interesting sizzle that the BBC recorded it. Well, <laughs> it was recorded and then the BBC now has it in their sound archives. Okay. So, <laughs> like... That's interesting. And I did, I know you're probably going to ask, so do I have the recording? Um, I do you looked have it, the recording? <laughs> I looked it up and I cannot find the recording anywhere. Uh, once again, they do have videos of the the event though. And uh, they have bits and pieces of it on YouTube, but they actually don't have the full video. If you go to their website, um, they have the lecture series, but they also talk about where you can get the full video if you want. And they do have 
which I was going to play it, but then I'm like, eh, it's not that great. I, I mean, it sounds cool, but it wouldn't come across, I think, you know, through the podcast. They do have the sound of the roar of the ovens and the fires. The Gladstone organization or corporation wanted to create, they organized the event. They wanted to create it. But their pottery oven, because it had been shut down so long, so we're talking about, you know, 1956 is when, um, when basically they really, really diminished at that point because of the Clean Air Act. They had kind of, um, I guess they kind of died a little bit off, but then that's what totally did them in. Um, so can you imagine 1956 was the last time any of these were fired mm-hmm. and they've just been sitting around. They are, a lot of them are still in working factories and stuff like that, but you know, no one cleans them. They're just sitting right. there. So, uh, 56 to 78 and they're, you know, thinking about this and they're like, we want to do it, but we can't use our oven. So, um, they were able to find a group that, um, was willing to definitely allow them to use their oven. The Hudson and Middleton pottery allowed theirs to be used. And um, the fun fact about it was it had sat so long and it was a working factory, so they had to make sure it was safe, you know, if they're going to start up this oven again. There was there were all these pigeon droppings in it. Mm. So they had to clear out the pigeon droppings and they said that there was so... Yeah, there were so many pigeon droppings, and uh, Pam Bott, once again, the curator, had wished she kind of gotten a number of tonnage, but she said she didn't have that. And um, they called them volunteers, but they were from the detention center in the uh, area, <laughs> had to clean up the ovens to get them ready. What service? Uh, it just said the detention center, so I don't don't know. I mean, I would assume that's like the police. No, I mean, just like, oh, wow, how nice. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of service. (laughs) So so most of them uh, used anywhere from 10 to 30 tons of coal, and then they would burn up to 72 hours for the cycle. For this big event, they used uh, 12 tons of coal and burned the oven for approximately 31 hours to get it to the point of 1,050 degrees Celsius. Ooh, that's pretty hot. Yeah, and there were eight fire mouths that controlled the temperature in this particular bottle oven. So um, once again, when you kind of got it going, it was going and raging, you know, to get it up to this proper temperature, which is, to me, is amazing that it's that high. Don't want to put your hand in that. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, I did not write down the day. I just wrote down that it was about 31 hours um, to go uh, to get up to that point. And um, they were saying on that Wednesday... It's kind of the day that they knew the pottery was going to be ready, and that's the day that they um, made the bacon. But that evening, uh, like I said, they have minute by minute written down. So that that night, the pottery was done around 7.30 in the evening, but the cycle of the oven wasn't truly done yet. So you can imagine you've got an oven sitting there at 1,050 degrees Celsius, you know, that's been burning already for 31 hours to get to that point. Um how how long it would take for all those bricks and everything to cool back down. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it actually took until 4 p.m. on Saturday. So we're talking 7.30 at night on Wednesday to 4 o'clock on Saturday that it fully went through its cycle and cooled down. Man. So, <laughs> so I could just imagine, you know, once again, 4,000 of these burning 
and it could take 72 hours really for the cycle to go through and just the constant like you know the air must have been horrible in that region oh yeah because every time that you know they would have to wait for it to cool down then they'd have to get it up again so these the pottery you know they would have a good week of downtime really before they could put more pottery in there so does it say how much like how many pottery pots whatever dishes i'm glad you asked that (laughs) so i do have the statistics for this actual last bottle oven firing on that so when you've got the oven uh the pottery wasn't just placed into the oven they're placed into what are called and i don't know if i'm i probably should have looked at the pronunciation of this but saggers S-A-G-G-A-R-S. Hey, watch your mouth, Ma. (laughs) But they were used, and basically they're vessels or things that hold the pottery in them, um, you know, and they're closed up. And that's pretty much, they said, because of, first of all, I don't know if it would be too hot if they just, you know, didn't have, like, anything buffering it, but they said that soot, dirt, everything would actually stay out of the pottery if they kept them in these these sagars. So for the actual big event, they used around 1,174 of them mm. in this oven. So that is amazing. And they, once again, have very good statistics. So they broke it down to what kind of sagars they used, how big they were, and how many of each. And um, they said that they were made special for the event. So this is once again coming off of their website. They were made special for the event uh, by the Diamond Clay Company in uh, also Stoke-on-Trent uh, of Hartshill, Stoke-on-Trent. Careful planning went into ensuring the correct quantity and shapes were ordered for the specific firing. And the insides of the walls of each sagger, so the actual unit that the pottery was in, were glazed before the firing to prevent the porous sagger effectively sucking the glaze from the products it contained. So I thought it was kind of interesting. So in other words, in order for them not to dry out, they actually put glaze on the inside of the sagger as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the top rim and bottom edge was each smeared with a slop bone okay. wash to prevent wad clay sticking to the saggers in the bung. So... There were 750 oval saggers used. They were 9 inches wide, 18 inches long, and 12 inches high. And all of the saggers that they used in this were identified with cobalt stenciling to signify it was the last firing. Um, Because they actually had a huge, uh, not only was it just a great event, because they got all these people together again and, you know, fired up um, this this uh, bottle oven, but they used it to actually as a fundraiser, basically for the museum. Okay. And so they sold all the pottery and the saggers used at the event. Um, they only needed 694 uh, of the oval ones, but they had 750. For round ones, they had 500 of them. They were 11 inches inside diameter and 12 inches height, and uh, only 480 were actually required. 51 oval hiller sagger and oval bats. Now, what those are is basically a lid. So, um, 51 of those used. 
32 round ones were used. And then there were some broken ones um, that the the organizer provided and basically they use them just as packaging um, and they said scotches which is a term for wedges between the bungs of the saggers uh, to help stabilize them so they used um, 25 kilograms and uh, actually I'm not quite sure why they broke this down but they have 25 kilograms and then half a hundred weight of another broken saggers so that like I said they really to the T had everything, um, you know, down of once again, the inches, everything, um, that went in it as well as all the, um, uh, just the play by play minute, really, you can go back to their website and literally someone maybe we could sit here and do a play by play of the whole bottle oven thing. So, so I'm still interested if one oven can hold, you know, this many uh, saggers and all the pottery pieces inside of it. So do they basically like enter into the oven? Do they actually walk in and they place where all the saggers would be and then they would leave and then they heat it up? Or to me, I'm thinking like, oh, you just like, I don't know, put it on a pallet and you shove it in there. Yeah, I, you know, I did not research that or read that per se, but I, they had a lot of pictures showing, um, it was interesting. They said that, you know, a lot of these people hadn't even worked together even in the past and they came together like a well-oiled, you know, unit last minute to do this. And, um, they showed pictures. So they showed a lot of people with the stacked saggers, but I don't know if that was outside or if that was actually within the oven. So mm -hmm. I really didn't per se read you know, about that, like if they went into the oven or not. Okay. But, um, you know, that's a good thought because most of the ones that we're used to are more like the pizza brick oven where you would just kind of yeah. slide it in. But, yeah, when you're stacking things like this, I'm sure it took quite a while. And like you said, probably they had to go in it. And I I had no idea what Sager was. Uh, so I'm reading, you know, all these articles and doing all these research and kept saying Sager. I'm like, what? What? So I had to go actually look that up. So when they were talking about, you know, the bottle shape, it kind of reminded me of chimneyas. And I looked up a little bit more about the chimneyas and that that shape was to allow uh, things to be burned without... Uh, rain coming in I didn't really find anything on why you know it was per se bottle shaped or at least I didn't go that far into my research so I don't know if that was the same idea since they constantly were burning these you know they didn't want the want it to go out so were they you know was it the same idea of a chimney so the water wouldn't come in and it got me thinking to other you know about other ovens and stuff outside so we've got um like fire pits you got the chimneyas uh, you've got solar ovens, mm -hmm. uh, grills. So there's quite a few things that, you know, are outside baking units, basically. <laughs> well, and, and it makes sense, too, because, like, you know, like I was talking about last week, we would go for medical brigades into different homes and see if their homes were well ventilated or not. And if we worked on making, like, an eco stove, we would place it outside because then they wouldn't even have to worry about smoke being inhaled 
because it's all filtered through the interior and all that. So instead, you just have it outside and you're good. Yeah. Uh, I think outside kitchens are kind of cool. So when I was looking through, they had a really cool video on YouTube. You'll have to go look it up because I don't have the the actual, you know, uh, URL for it. But it was how to make your own earthen oven in the backyard. Yeah. It was really kind of cool. So how they built it. So it made me think of that, but it was more like an igloo. It, it looked more like a fire grill for the, um, you know, for a pizza mm-hmm. when yeah. you've seen those. So I'm like... Looking at it going, oh, that'd be kind of cool to make. And then I watched the video and I'm like, yeah, I think that we won't make that for this day. A lot of work. We'll, huh? we'll, we'll just stick to our, you know, uh, fire roasted oven or fire roasted pizza on like the grill or yeah. something like that. Yeah, there was a lot of work involved. But, you know, if you are interested in making an earthen oven, uh, there were plans out there. It was not shaped at all, though, like a bottle oven. So just uh, to learn how to make it into a bottle, you're good. Yeah, yeah. So, so it would. Um, I think it would be cool to go see these museums and stuff. But so here's a funny aside. Um, I use dictation uh, to do my notes, and usually it's pretty good, pretty accurate. But for some reason, I guess it just had um, Bryce syndrome over there. <laughs> when I say the name of these things, you're like, what? <laughs> so every Every, every single time I said bottle oven, it came up as bubble 11. Oh. And that did not change no matter what I did. Every single time came up as that. Then the two creepy things to me are, um, it couldn't understand the word kiln. So, you know, when I was talking about just pottery and some of my notes have um, talked about kilns and stuff, it did kill every time. Okay. And then, um, so I actually had in my notes I haven't talked about it yet, but when we were in um, in England last time, we did get to southern, uh, or once again, we went to southern England. Um, my family's from there, and I've only visited once, but uh, we have, you know, we weren't up in the northern area to be able to even know about this, um, this uh, city. But when uh, I had in my notes, I was going to talk about our trip to the Anne Boleyn Castle. So while we were in London last time, we actually flew out of Gatwick and we were looking for places to stay. And not far out of Gatwick, about 15 minutes away, is the original home of Anne Boleyn and her castle. So we got to stay in that castle. It was so cool. I would love to go back. Uh, We were looking at going back when we go in October, but they were booked. But um, if you ever get a chance so cool to go and go to it. it's called the heaver castle but anyway um when i was dictating this into my notes and then looking back later i was going what and because ambulin came across as ambulance <laughs> so i think that's kind of creepy that like two of the dictation things wanted to autocorrect to kill an ambulance <laughs> yeah Anyway. Maybe it's just like at least with Anne Boleyn, that's very British, you know. It's like I know. I I mean, it's gotten some other words that I really wouldn't thought it would. So that was bizarre to me. But anyway, to so to celebrate, go uh, visit uh, Stoke on Trent if you can. So once again, it's headed north out of London up towards Manchester in that general area. Um, you can go, you know, visit the visit the museums. You can make your own kiln. 
So go visit. Not your own kill. <laughs> Not your own kill. Don't your own kill. Kiln. Don't or... uh, just go to a place to find ambulance. Ambulance. Yeah. And if you don't want to have to fire your own pottery, uh, I'm sure that this is a big thing everywhere around us. We have several pottery places we can go to and paint the night away and then they'll glaze it and and do everything for you and you just go pick it back up again which i actually made a really cool tea set uh for my niece and uh i misspelled her name on the tea set don't release that information here she might listen i think she probably already knows uh, maybe but but you know it was made special by her aunt <laughs> I had fun making that, but, and the only reason I, well, I mean, I would have made it anyway, because I've gone out, but, uh, I picked something that took a lot longer to make, because that's when you were in High School Musical, and I was there for the rehearsals, and it happened to have an artist studio next to it, and he had something to do, so I sat there and made pottery. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, and... Let's see. Or another thing you can do is just not do anything on that day and be happy with the clean air around you. There you go. Because there are not 72 hours of burning of 30 tons from 4,000 ovens. And just appreciate the Clean Air Act. Going back to how you were explaining that Gigi, you know, my old relative... She would, it was Gigi, right? Yeah. Who uh, would have to deal with the smog just being on the curtains and you have to clean those. And I think the Clean Air Act came about due to the fact that, I mean, London's known for its smog, but especially in the industrial era of 1940s and 50s during the wars and all that, there was so much smog that it was like actual thick pea soup and you couldn't see like three feet ahead of you. And it caused a multiple, like a multitude of deaths. There were a lot of uh, rheumatic issues, um, a lot of people with asthma. And even, so it was maybe like a three-day period when this one smog was going on. I think it's like the great green smog or something. Um, there were like hundreds of people who died during the period, but months continuing after there were like thousands of people who had succumbed to these, you know, breathing issues afterward. Um, so the Clean Air Act was definitely necessary for yeah. London. Um, it's interesting. I think that the Clean Air Act is, I guess, worldwide then, or to a point to, you know, certain certain countries i guess signed on to it i, I really don't know i just know that london needed it. yeah well when i when i think about london um you know i know it's different nowadays but you know just thinking about it my mind always goes back to more like the time of um peter pan and things like that and of course that's when the industries were really big and factories were really big and yeah when they're flying over that so that's what i yeah. think about it. and when they did uh one of the opening ceremonies for the olympics um they really showed the industrial revolution um and things like that and kind of kind of steampunky that made me think of but um you know it it just really 
that's what I think about when I think about London is older London with all the factories and stuff like that. It's changing though. I mean, so many of the older neighborhoods, older industrial neighborhoods are being converted into big high rises that are clean and modern. Yeah. And actually thinking about it so you had to clean your drapery, but also you had to like clean the wallpaper. So you actually had people come in and either, you know, you did it yourself or they came in and I think you actually had like scrape the soot off and actually like soak it down or something. Too bad Gigi's not here to ask her about that. I mean, she did say every single day she had to clean the floor, the furniture, you know, everything she had to wipe down and but she was constantly taking down the drapes to clean them. A fun English activity. And go dust off everything. Yes. So, or once again, be glad that you don't have that dust, hopefully, in your house. Yeah. Or that kind of dust. You might have dust, but... Mm-hmm. So. so, I know I didn't have a lot of side stories, but I thought that was just a very interesting day, you know? That they, they did this and, you know, what was it, 20, 30 years later? 20 years? 57 to 78, right? Or 56 to 78, so yeah, 20 plus years later, they said they fire up an old oven yeah it's different yeah well thank you for sharing (laughs) about that all right so we will be back next week with two more holidays that you can celebrate yeah thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations we'll be back again with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions you can follow us at don't tell the easter bunny on facebook and instagram or don't tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use don't tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time. time.